Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's Family Stories take us from a Dutchman who fought on land, sea and air, whiskey galore in Scotland, a lucky escape, and finally to the horrors of a POW camp in the desert. We begin with this from Vinnie Saunders and Kath Mussert. Dear Alan James, IC member Vinnie Saunders here. I was recently talking to my sister-in-law, Kath Mussert, about the Family Stories series. She thought that you might be interested in her grandfather's story, as he had an unusual wartime experience. Over to Kath. My grandfather was Dutch and joined up on the day war was declared in 1939. The Germans invaded the Netherlands in 1940 and overran Dutch forces in under four days. My grandfather and his unit escaped Holland by the skin of their teeth and upon his arrival in England, he joined the Royal Air Force. My grandfather, like so many of his generation, demonstrated extraordinary bravery in the face of fascism. The unusual part of the story is that my granddad's father was the cousin of the leader of the Dutch Nationalist Socialist Party, Anton Musset. Anton was, by all accounts, the black sheep of the family and something of a joke before he was appointed as puppet leader by the Nazi regime. The misery he imposed on the Dutch people and his role in the Holocaust was anything but a joke and the family name is still occasionally recognised by older people in the Netherlands. The family that remained in the country after the war had to change their name to escape the shame of what Anton had done. In contrast, my grandfather, alongside thousands of other Dutch people, was doing everything he could to fight Nazi tyranny. After his demob, Opa would rarely speak about the war. We had no idea he had written an account of his experience. Opa passed away in 1990, and we only discovered his war notes recently, hidden in an old book. I cannot tell you how moving it was to find these papers, and to hear his voice so many years after he had died. I thought you might be interested in Opa's story, so here it all is. A Flying Dutchman at War Holland was invaded on the 10th of May 1940. I was on duty along a defence canal about 10 miles from the German border. After 24 hours, we retreated successfully westwards. After four days, Holland capitulated, and we were given the choice to surrender or cross the Scheldt. I remember making an impassioned speech that England could never lose. For once, I was right. About 20 of us decided to give it a whirl, went to Vlissingen, cleared the railway station of all the booze. Jerry should not have that. We did. We got across on fishing boats, being strafed by 109s and Stukas, but our skipper weaved so much and we had all our machine guns going, so we were okay. We went to Abbeville, 
lost our lieutenant and about ten others in a heavy air attack. So then we were nine. We were supposed to meet some other Dutch remnants, but naturally not another Dutchman in sight. The roads in Belgium were a carnage, full of shot-up lorries, dead horses and civilians with carts and prams. Our diet consisted of French loaves, which were date-stamped March, also vin du pay. The civilians did not like us much, as our uniforms were fairly similar to the Germans, especially the helmets. We eventually got to Cherbourg. A Dutch ferry was already loaded with all kinds of Dutch remnants, and about 1,500 of us got to Plymouth, where the Navy came alongside and brought lovely roast beef and all the etceteras on silver-plated salvers, a sight I shall never forget. We entrained for Porthcawl, and at every station we stopped, the WVS gave us chocolate tea and cigarettes. We were treated like conquering heroes, although we did not feel like that. After six weeks in Porthcawl, we were let out of camp, went to the pavilion, where the girls had been taught some Dutch by our officers. Phrases such as, take your trousers off, were commonplace. Poor girls. In October, we went to Congleton in Cheshire, where I was given the job of translating the Bren Gun instruction book into Dutch. Cushy job, but I did not get very far, as the powers that be asked for volunteers for the RAF. This suited me fine. I'd done enough marching. From there, via Miles Masters, Hurricanes to OTU at Howarden. As usual, we had a welcome speech from the CO. Here, I must tell you that my nickname in Dutch was Moos, which means sparrow. The CO finished his speech by saying that only one bird could fuck and fly at the same time, and that was the sparrow. A loud cheer went up from our contingent with great pats on my shoulders. I felt somewhat embarrassed to tell him afterwards why the great cheer. My instructor was an ex-Battle of Britain pilot, a Czech whose English was still limited. So was mine, and we could not understand each other over the intercom, so we finished off speaking in German to each other. Finally, I was let loose on a spit, lined up on the runway and took off in coarse pitch, which is like driving off in third gear. I staggered in the air, realised what I'd done and shifted into fine pitch. Made a very good landing, but what my instructor had to tell me was nobody's business. After about 20 hours, we were sent to our squadron, which was somewhere near Catterick. There were about 15 pilots left, so we had enough to form a Dutch flight. From there we went to Tangmere, where we did sweeps over France. This did not last very long, about eight weeks, because we lost half of our flight. As the Dutch government wanted to get a Dutch squadron together, our losses were too heavy, and we were sent to an airfield opposite Scapa Flow, which was a quiet occupation. Unfortunately, I developed sinus trouble and was grounded. As I was quite fit to fly below 10,000 feet, I suggested flying boats. No way they could ever get to over 10,000 feet. I don't think anyone was keen to have me in their crew when they learned I'd been a fighter pilot. Due to the vast power of a fighter aircraft, a slight mistake in airspeed or course was soon corrected. A Sunderland had a takeoff speed of 70 MLS fully loaded and a stalling speed of 65 MLS. So the slightest mistake could be fatal. The crew of a Sunderland consisted of three pilots who had to be able to double up as a navigator, one navigator or observer, two wireless operators, four air gunners and one bomb aimer who also doubled up as an air gunner. Our armament consisted of four guns in the rear turret, two in the mid-upper and two or four in the front turret. If we were attacked, we would open the bomb doors on starboard and port for two machine guns, also one at the rear door. The bomb aimer would lie on the floor in the front and fire between the legs of the front gunner. 
You might think a clumsy aircraft like a Sunderland would not have much chance against Junkers 88s, but provided you saw them first, you nearly always got back, however badly shot up. Our main job was to prevent enemy submarines from surfacing in the Bay of Biscay, and if possible to destroy them with our 8,500-pound bombs. This was very tricky and did not happen very often. We operated closely with the Navy. As soon as we sent a sighting report, the Navy would get going with their ships. This method worked quite well. Our trips were over the bay and lasted 9 to 11 hours, but with briefing and debriefing, you were on the go for about 15 hours. The most tiring time was at dawn or dusk, and also the most critical. The U-boats tried to travel on the surface mostly during the night. It gave them double the speed and a chance to recharge their batteries. On a good moonlit night, their wake was clearly visible, but unfortunately, there were not many of those. During the eight months or so I was on Sunderlands, we made about nine sightings, but they usually crash-dived. We would straddle the area with our bombs, but I doubt whether we were very successful. On the other hand, we made them keep submerged, which was the main purpose. Also, thanks to our sighting report, the Navy would give chase and quite often would give our base a ring to say they'd got a sub. On our way to or out of the operational zone, we could relax and drink coffee or tea by the gallon, even snatch a snooze in the wardroom. On the way back, we would have a main meal, steak or eggs and ham. We had quite a good galley and woe the cook if he didn't do it properly. In December 1943, we were over the bay when we were attacked by six JU-88s. I was sitting in the second dickey seat and just putting the Bren gun in its pivot when I was hit by bullets and shrapnel in my right arm. I was very lucky. The boys managed to get three JU-88s. We went down onto the deck and got back. We had a lot of bullet holes which were filled with plugs. I was lying on one of the bunks in the wardroom filled with morphine. On landing, the CO and the doctor rushed on board and everyone was talking at the same time. All of a sudden there was quiet. I listened and told the doc I wanted to get ashore. I would not be able to swim and there was a lot of water coming in underneath my bunk. The boys had not wanted to disturb me while I was lying on the bunk and had not checked for holes. My arm was in such a mess the doctors were thinking of amputation, but my skipper and the CO protested and I was transferred to Pontypridd where I was lucky enough to be operated on by Wing Commander Watson-Jones, who later on became the orthopaedic surgeon for the King. He made a marvellous job of it, although I was in and out of hospital for nine months. My arm remained very weak and my piloting days were over. Well, I finally managed to get my D-Mob in 1949. I enjoyed most of my time in the forces. One usually forgets the nasty bits, but ten years out of one's life is a big slice. I could have done with less. Antonius Musset. And thanks to Vinnie Saunders and Kath Musset for that story. Our next story is from Andy McVean. Hi, Alan James. I'd like to share my grandpa's story. James Rose was an electrician by trade and was also part of the Home Guard in his village of Balfron in central Scotland. His age, he would have only been about 18 at the end of the war, and trade were the reasons he was never called up. Some elements of the Home Guard survive in the area to this day, as many, including my grandpa, joined the fire service at Kilfasset Farm, which has gone on to become an established station with the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service. His work, as an his work as an electrician took him down the docks in Clydebank. One particular day, a Liberty ship came in from America, with the air conditioning not working. My grandpa was dispatched to go and investigate, and managed to sort it out. From what I gather, it was a relatively simple fix, but here was my grandpa to save the day. The next part of the story is where things began to change. 
When we were composing his eulogy, my mum and I were discussing this story and we discovered a discrepancy. From what he'd told my granny and my mum, he'd been thanked with much tea, sweets, nylons, etc. that the Americans have always been known to pass out when they arrived on these shores during the war. But what he'd told me was that he'd been supplied with plenty of whiskey as well. I do believe he tailored it to who he was talking to. I doubt his mother would have been impressed by the whiskey, but somehow he was happy to tell his grandson at a young age. Thanks, Andrew McVean. Our next story comes from Paul Mycroft. Hi chaps, my family story concerns my grandfather Sidney Mycock. Born in Salford, he found himself, my grandmother and my five-year-old father in Dagenham, East London at the start of the war, where he worked at Ford, handling acids for munitions and other metalwork. My father was evacuated to Aldborough in Suffolk for three years, but in 1942 Sid and Marie decided to head back to Manchester, away from the bombing with my father in tow. When the three of them arrived in Manchester, on the train at Piccadilly, Sid said it was on fire, so much for escaping the bombing. Having to find a way to earn extra money, Sid worked as a publican and a bookie on the side. He created a pseudonym for the gambling aspect, Sid Mycroft. One evening, he was playing cards with a couple of friends. After a while, he became tired, so turned into a bedroom upstairs, leaving the other two to continue playing downstairs. The house was then bombed and both men were killed, my grandfather surviving after being retrieved from the rubble. As an aside, Sid then changed his family's name to Mycroft by posting an advert in the Daily Mirror, manually adjusting his birth certificate with a scalpel and pen. So here I am today because of a large slice of luck writing to you from Vancouver Island in Western Canada. Keep your powder dry, fellas. Sincerely, Paul Mycroft. Our final story this week is from Sue Sinclair. My father joined the TA Light Anti-Aircraft Regiment as a dispatch rider in 1939 and served until 1946. I find it near impossible to summarise his experiences adequately. From the early days of the war, when he saw one of the liver birds almost shot from its perch, through his troop ship being attacked on Christmas Day, to life as a desert rat with dangerous patrols behind enemy lines, the desperate fighting to hold to Brook, then being taken as a POW. He used all his nine lives and he captured things so vividly in his memoir. To try and give an insight into the character of my father's tale, I've decided to relate one particularly poignant incident after he'd been taken prisoner. It's described in his own words. We were wild animals in a cage, filthy and unkempt. After even a short walk, he started feeling dizzy, lightheaded, weak at the knees because of hunger and the terrible thirst. One day, a poor devil in dirty, blood-stained underpants, who had nothing else in the world to call his own, just sat on the ground whimpering. Then, with a terrible scream, he ran for the wire, and before anyone could collect themselves and stop this foolish rush, he sprung onto the fence like a wild man, even trying to climb up the barbed wire. He'd very bad dysentery and a severely burnt back from the endless sun. Between disease, sunburn and the everlasting hunger, it tipped the scales into madness. He was nothing but a dirty, skinny wreck, a bag of bones. He couldn't stand it any longer. They shot him. They couldn't even do that properly. or well, they didn't wish to. He hung on the barbs, hanging like a piece of dirty rag that the wind had tossed against the fence. The camp commandant put a guard around him. He stamped up and down, waving his fists and shouting ten to the dozen. 
Nobody was allowed to try and take him down, so he just hung like an animal hide to dry. Our doctor pleaded, and the padre was determined to help the lad, saying that the guards could do what they wished. The lad was crying like a child alone and afraid in the dark. The commandant said he'd have the padre shot if he crossed the tripwire. The guards even took aim, but still the padre was prepared to cross over. The vile, prancing commandant had half a dozen prisoners lined up against the tripwire, hands on their heads. If either the doctor or padre crossed a wire, they'd all be shot. It was a very near thing that day. It only took one man on either side of the fence to panic, and we would have had a massacre. It was an ugly and frightening standoff for the rest of that day. As one of the prisoners collapsed from standing too long in the sun, another was dropped into his place. All through the night the devil hung on the wire, crying, cursing and pleading. All through the night the half-dozen stood in line, being changed only when they collapsed. I can see it now, so very clear. A bright desert moon, the rest of us just milling about like cattle on the verge of a stampede. The white-faced guards, nervous, perhaps afraid of receiving the order to shoot. The commandant continued his stomping, fuming and frothing from the mouth. This man in charge of hundreds of lives. He'd not even let one of his own men give that scarecrow a sip of water. Or let anybody put a coat or a blanket over that torn frame. At sunrise the following day there was little change, apart from the fact that most of both sides were tired and wanted it to end. Soon after sunup, he was still pleading for his mother, begging for a sip of water, but receiving nothing while we all stood each side of the fence waiting. So the tall scarecrow died hanging on the wire. At last, his troubles were over. Feelings and tempers ran high all that day and for many days it followed. But sadly, inevitably, we all had more important things to think about, like how to survive. I'm incredibly proud of my father, Lance Bombardier Harris, known to his mates as Scouse. That was from Sue Sinclair. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the members' site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Bye for now. <laughs>